Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. It's going to be in verses 1 through 19. You can also find that text printed in the back of your bulletins. As you're turning there, I think if we were to think about the different uh, arenas that we have in life, the different duties or responsibility, we have, we realize we have responsibilities at work, at school, maybe generally in society, to our family and friends, and the list goes on. Virtually every area of our life comes with certain duties and responsibilities. Now, Jesus in these verses makes it clear that the Christian life is no exception. Following him comes with certain expectations, certain responsibilities, and certain duties. So look with me as I begin reading in verse 1 of Luke chapter 17. He, being Jesus, said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord says, You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Did not any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that your word this morning would be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Father, that we would see the glories of your salvation, the cleansing from sin that comes in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would rejoice to serve you, our Lord and Master. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we live in what is often called the age of entitlement. People accuse each new and younger generation of being more entitled than the one who came before it. Sorry about that, kids. But research does seem to indicate that people are growing more entitled than they once were. Now, entitlement is simply that prideful and destructive attitude that says, I deserve this, or I am owed that. Now, when I am stressed and upset, people owe it to me to cater to my feelings. I have the right to the life that I want. 
I deserve to be happy, and people owe it to me to seek my happiness. I deserve the praise and the recognition of others. Friends, we can be entitled about our spiritual lives as well. We can be quick to think that, that we are deserving of the blessings of God. Oh God, I've served you faithfully. Why have you not done this for me? God, I've served you faithfully. How could you allow this to, to happen in my life? I seem to be a better and more faithful Christian than that person over there. How come their life seems better than my life? Why have you not given me this thing for which I have been praying for for so long? Why? Well, friends, if you are often discontent, jealous, or just simply disappointed with life, perhaps it is because you feel entitled to that which you do not have. My friends, in our verses for this morning, Jesus attacks this attitude of entitlement by focusing on our duties and responsibilities as his disciples. He takes the focus off what we might think we are owed and instead places the, the focus on what we owe to others, but more importantly, what we owe to, to God ourselves. We find his message to those of us who struggle with entitlement in verse 10. When you have done all that you are commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And so, friends, in these verses, we're going to look at three different duties of the Christian life. The first is the duty to seek the spiritual good of others. It's going to be verses 1 through 4, the duty to seek the spiritual good of others. Second, the duty to obey, verses 5 to 10. And finally, the duty of gratitude in verses 11 through 19. And so first, our duty as Christians to seek the spiritual good of others. Friends, one of the main ways that we can seek the spiritual good of others as well as honestly pursue our own spiritual good is to be on guard against all sin. Jesus says in verse 3, and in these opening four verses, Jesus specifically mentions three ways for us to guard against sin. One, we're not to cause sin. We're not to be the cause of sin. Two, we're not to tolerate sin. We're not to tolerate sin, but then third, our Christians are those who are to forgive sin. Well, so first, we are not to, to be the cause of sin. Jesus knew the reality of our sinful world. He knew the temptations in the world and that offenses would come. However, Jesus strongly warned his disciples not to be the causes of those offenses, not to lead others to sin, not to lead others to, some, to stumble. He said, woe to the one through whom offenses come. It would be better for him if a millstone, which was just a, a large, heavy stone used to grind grain, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea and then dragged to the bottom than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Well, these little ones here refer to Christians. It's not just children, but believers, Christians, children of God, a woe to the one who would lead believers astray and into sin. Or they will face a judgment worse than being surely drowned in the sea. My friend, Scripture reserves some of its harshest warnings to those who teach what is false about God. That's why James writes in James chapter 3, verse 1, 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. James warns pastors and teachers that their words carry great weight and influence. Others listen to them. So they will receive a greater judgment if they teach what is false. They lead people astray. They encourage people to ignore the words of the Lord and into sin. But the truth is that we can lead people astray, not just with our words, but also our life. Friends, those who gossip want other people to join them in their gossip. They entice them to sin. Those who are envious justify their envy by getting others to to share it. We want others to share our bitterness and anger at those we have made our enemies. We provoke people to anger with our own words and our own actions. In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32, the Apostle Paul writes this about those who have chosen to live godless and unrighteous lives. He says, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things, like that whole list that he just gave, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. How did you catch that? Not only do they sin, but they celebrate. They, they encourage the sin of others. They rejoice in the sin of others. They cheer people on in their sin. They want people to join them in their sin. Brothers and sisters, do not let this be you. The movies and TV, TV shows that are so common today, they often celebrate sins like adultery or sexual immorality. They portray the characters who commit these sins positively. They're trying to get you to celebrate these characters and these sins right along with them. The supporters of LGBTQ rights do not just want to be tolerated. They want you, the church, to accept, affirm, and celebrate that sin. The church, be on your guard. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. Now, kids and teenagers, I, I think this can be a particular danger for you. I think young people are often very tempted to encourage their friends and siblings to do what they know to be wrong, even and perhaps especially when they're not willing to, to do that themselves. They encourage people to watch what they should not watch, say what they should not say, do what they should not do. Uh, they laugh, they love to have secrets that they keep from parents or teachers and others. Kids and teenagers, Jesus is warning you not to encourage others to do what is wrong. Do not celebrate and encourage the sins of others. The old British pastor, William Gurnall, describes this danger well. Oh, take heed of soliciting others to sin. Thou takest the devil's office out of his hand. Let him do it himself, if he will. Make not thyself so like him. 
To tempt another is worse than to sin thyself. I was recently watching a a documentary called The Social Dilemma. It talks about the the dangers and the harm of social media, the way it can harm us as people. And in the documentary, the filmmakers interview several people who have quit their high-level jobs at places like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or all the ones I don't even know. Well, these people quit their job because they became convinced that social media was a destructive influence in society that it was harming people. Now, I'm not sure these individuals were Christians. I'm certain that not all of them were. But church, that is to be the attitude that we're to have towards sin. They did not want to do harm to others to the point that they quit their job because they saw the destructive influence of what they were working for. Friends, we do not want to be the cause of sin. And second, we're not to tolerate sin. Look again at the first half of verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, church, one of the the ways that we're to seek one another's spiritual good, one of the duties that we have to one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is to gently rebuke the sin we see in our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this does not mean that each and every time someone does something wrong that you should make sure you're pointing it out to them. Far from it. Proverbs 19.11, it is a virtue to overlook an offense. Friends, if you feel that the need to point it out each time someone sins against you, that is a sign of your own pride and your own self-righteousness. However, there's a serious or significant sin, perhaps a pattern of sin, particularly a pattern of unrepentant sin in the life of a fellow Christian, Church, you have the responsibility to to gently and lovingly bring it to their attention. Church, when we tolerate unrepentant sin in our midst, we lead others to stumble. It may not be an outward celebration of sin, but it at least subtly communicates that, you know what, we're okay with it. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Church, this also means that you should welcome the rebuke and correction of others in your life. Friends, you are not entitled to a life free of rebuke and correction. So I would encourage you to periodically ask your closest friends in the church, maybe your spouse, maybe somebody who's walked close close with you spiritually, periodically ask them if they've noticed patterns of sin in your life. Friends, welcome their watchfulness. Be on guard against sin. But third, Jesus calls us to forgive sin. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus said that though offenses will surely come, you are to forgive. In fact, Jesus says it stronger than that. He says you must forgive. No matter how many times they sin against you, you must forgive. Uh, When Jesus said that you must forgive seven times in a day, his point was not like you're off the hook on number eight, so start keeping a journal. As soon as you get to number eight, no more forgiveness has to be given. No, it was a symbolic way of saying that you must forgive every time. In in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said you must forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 for the math challenged among us. 
If you are a Christian, your, your duty is to be ready and eager to forgive. You do not get to say, oh, like that sin was just too big for me to forgive. That was too hurtful. I can never forgive that. You do not get to say that was the last straw. That was like the 100th time this person has committed this sin against me. I'm not forgiving them anymore. No, you must forgive. You are not entitled to hold on to bitterness and anger. You are not entitled to hold someone's sin against them. But I think this is one of the biggest reasons that we are slow to forgive or just refuse to forgive. We feel entitled to hurt those who have hurt us. We do this by refusing to forgive them, choosing to mistreat them instead. We want to hold their sins against them. We want that power and authority over them, and so we refuse to forgive. But Jesus calls you to extend the grace and forgiveness of the Lord instead. Why? Brothers and sisters, it's because Jesus has forgiven you. He's forgiven you much more than seven times in a day. Just think, how many times have you committed the same offense? Just take one of the sins that you struggle with. Just ask yourself, how many times have you committed that offense? Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. My friends, your forgiveness of others is not the means by which you earn your salvation. Like, uh, if I'm a really good forgiver, Jesus is then going to save me. But it is a sign of whether you have truly been forgiven. It's a sign of whether you have truly understood your sin. Friends, we were not entitled to God's forgiveness. You were not entitled to God's forgiveness, but he gave it. And so you are to give it to others. Brothers and sisters, take a moment to ask yourself, how quick are you to forgive the sins of others? But to forgive the sins of others is to commit to not hold their sin against them any longer. It's to commit to no longer bring up their past sin to, to condemn them again. And you're just waiting for the next time they do it so you can bring up all the old past sin and, and judge them with that as well. No, to forgive means that you've forgiven the person in your heart before they've ever asked for forgiveness. You've committed to not bringing up their past sins against them. And it means you treat them with kindness and grace, even if they never ask you for forgiveness. Well, church, your forgiveness of others is a means by which you have a duty to do spiritual good to others. But friends, it does spiritual good to you as well. It prevents the sin of bitterness and anger from taking hold in your life. It kills entitlement. Well, friends, we have the duty to seek the spiritual good of one another. But in God's mercy and grace and providence, when we do that, we find our own spiritual good as well. But look with me at verses 5 through 10. We also have the duty to obey. Second point of the sermon, the duty to obey. Now look at verse 5. The apostles had just heard Jesus teaching about their great responsibility to guard against sin. They had just heard that they must forgive. And they understandably think, like, well, how can we possibly do this? 
How can we live this out? And so they wisely and they rightly pleaded with Jesus to increase their faith. They understood that faith was needed if they had any hope of living in this way. As the commentator Robert Stein put it, Jesus responded by pointing out that what is needed is not a quantity of faith, but a quality of faith. Even the smallest amount of true faith, a mustard seed amount, could do mighty things. Friends, your need is not for a great amount of faith. Oh, that's good. We want lots of faith. What you need is true faith in our great Savior. True faith is marked by having faith in the right object, Jesus. Even faith as small as a mustard seed will do. Now, now Jesus told the apostles that if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, they could move a mulberry tree into the sea or move mountains, as Jesus put it in Matthew 17, 20. Friends, I think when Jesus says this, he is speaking figuratively, not literally. Now, of course, God has the power to move trees and mountains. He caused the sun to stand still in response to Joshua's prayer. He certainly answers the prayers of his people in miraculous ways today. But are any of you aware of any of the mountains of the Himalayas or the Alps being moved around in the last 2,000 years? Does that mean that, like, no one since Jesus spoke these words has had even a mustard seed worth of faith? Uh, Of course not. I think one pastor put it well when he said, the point of our Lord's lesson is simply this. You have, if you trust me and trust my strength, the power to do what is supernatural, what you cannot do humanly. That could certainly include moving mountains. But what is that in the context of our verses? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the power to obey. The self-control to not cause others to stumble. The boldness to rebuke sin. The power to forgive when it is humanly impossible. Friends, to be blunt, Jesus is not teaching that if you have enough faith, you can just claim freedom from sickness and disease in Jesus' name and it will be yours. He is not teaching that if you have enough faith, you can claim success and riches in Jesus' name and it will be yours. And he is not teaching that sickness or poverty is certainly the result of a lack of faith. Now that is a false gospel and those who teach it lead many to stumble. If that is what you teach, if that is what you believe, what happens to you when suffering comes? What happens when the Lord does not reward you with success or deliver you from difficult circumstances? What happens if, like our brother Bijou, your cancer continues to grow? What happens when a a loved one dies? Friends, it leads you to either doubt your own salvation, like, I must not have faith, or worse, to doubt the Lord and his faithfulness. Friends, if the only hope you can provide to people when they are suffering is you just need to have more faith, that's a poor hope. Good luck summoning enough faith on your own. But friends, thanks be to God that his word provides a far greater hope, a far superior hope. First, all the faith you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. 
And second, the hope of faith is not an earthly deliverance from sickness or poverty. Though we rejoice when that happens. But no, it is an eternal delivery from sin, death, sickness, sorrow, tears, sadness. My friends, the hope of the gospel is life eternal. So the sign of true faith, the faith that Jesus is calling for in these verses, is not, that a, good rep- is not a good report from the doctor. It's not a larger bank account. No, the sign of true faith is that you faithfully endure during the sufferings and trials of this life. The sign of true faith is that you cling to what is true. You guard and fight against your own sin. You forgive. The sign of true faith is that you grow in the fruits of the Spirit. The sign of true faith is that you are obedient to the Lord's commands. Friends, that is the duty of every Christian. Obedience from the heart. It's the point of the parable that Jesus told in verses 7 through 10. The point is that Christians have a duty to obey. He gives us the faith to obey, but obedience is our duty. And so in Jesus' parable, Christians are the servants. The servants represents Christians. That's a great description of Christians. Jesus is our Lord and Master, since we are his servants. Now, Jesus is not endorsing unkindness or mistreatment of servants, or those who may serve in households. In fact, the, the master was not mistreating the servant in this parable. Uh, this would have been ordinary first century culture. In this parable, what is it that the servant should not expect from his master? Well, he should not expect special treatment or a big reward for doing his job or, or faithfully performing his duty. And just because the servant spent the day faithfully plowing the field or tending the sheep, he's not entitled to eat before his master or expect like a huge thank you from his his master. Why? Because he simply did his duty. It was his job. This is what was expected. Well, when uh, our children were young, I guess they're still young, But when they were younger, we used to give them candy as a reward if they quietly sat through church. But at some age, we stopped doing that. Sorry, kids. Why did we stop doing that? It's because it's kind of their job. We taught them obedience. Candy helped. But they should not expect a reward for every simple act of obedience. Friends, neither should you. In verse 10, Jesus says that in the same way Christian... You are not entitled to some big earthly reward for faithfully obeying Jesus' commands. After all, you're just an unworthy servant who was redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, faithful obedience is simply your duty. So faithfully endure in your difficult marriage or in your difficult job. Strive for contentment. If the Lord has not provided the spouse or child you so desperately desire. Kids and teenagers, obey your parents even when you disagree with them or do not like their instructions. Christian, these things are your duty. Do not think that the Lord owes you any great earthly reward for your obedience. You are not owed a life of ease or comfort or happiness. But I'm I'm afraid that we all too often were tempted to grow bitter towards the Lord when he does not give us what we want. 
We say, or even if we do not say it, we, we think. But Lord, I've been so faithful. Like, I, I've tried so hard to obey. How could you let this happen to me? Why will you not change my situation? Why will you not reward me? Brothers and sisters, we are all unworthy servants. You were saved by grace, not your own efforts. And no matter what you do in life, no matter what you accomplish in this life, the best you can ever hope to do is simply your duty. The author Paul Tripp puts it this way. If you carry around not only pride, but also entitlement, you will tend to turn blessings into demands and gifts of grace into the expected. We must never forget that we have not earned our standing with the Lord. Each moment he accepts us and each situation when he uses us result from one thing and one thing alone, grace. We are entitled to nothing but his anger. Only grace entitles us to his accepting love. Praise be to God that he has given his grace. And church, take heart. Those who have true faith, those who are faithful to do their duty will eventually receive their reward. Notice that after the servant prepared and served the master's meal, he was invited to eat. He did not go hungry. The church, when this life on earth is done, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and followed him in faithful obedience will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not because we deserved it, because we serve a master of abundant grace and mercy and generosity. Praise be to God. Christian, we have a duty to seek the spiritual good of others. We have the duty to obey. And we have a duty to gratitude. That's point three of the sermon, the duty of gratitude. Now look with me again, starting in verse 11. While traveling to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. When Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Did not any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. So as Jesus enters this village, ten men with leprosy cry out to Jesus from a distance, asking him to have mercy on them. They're asking Jesus to heal them. Now, leprosy in the Bible refers to a variety of skin diseases. And the reason these men were crying out to Jesus from a distance is that in the Old Testament law, in the, the biblical law, it commanded that those with leprosy be segregated from the rest of the community. They're also to be kept away from the temple, the place of God's presence, the place of worship. So they were excluded from the social and religious life of Israel. They were unclean, often very contagious, and so they had to live a lonely and a difficult life. So these men stood at a distance crying out to Jesus for mercy. In some sense, that's, that's all they could do. 
In response, Jesus graciously told them to go present themselves to the priest. Now, the, the Old Testament law, you can read about it in the Old Testament, it demanded that anyone with leprosy be declared unclean. That's what excluded them from the, the social and religious life of Israel. They were defiled. But for a leper to be able to re-enter society and, and once again go to the temple, once again rejoin the community, they first had to be healed. You know, some skin diseases will go away on their own after a time. God may miraculously heal. They may receive medical treatment. But first, they had to be healed. But then the law required that they go present themselves to a priest. The priest would examine them to make sure they were, in fact, healed, and then he would declare them clean. They would be able to rejoin the religious and social life of Israel at that time. So Jesus commanded these men to follow the law, go present themselves to a priest. And Jesus himself took care of the healing, and notice that, that on the way to the priest, all ten were miraculously cured of their leprosy. It's like they were just walking along the road and like, oh, all of a sudden, my skin is perfect. But, but, only one of these ten men who were miraculously healed, who were going to be amazingly able to rejoin society, uh, only one of them came back to say thank you and give glory to God. And the one who came back was not even an Israelite. He was a, a foreigner. And not even just any foreigner. He was a Samaritan of all people. Of those who would have been most hated by the people of Israel. Looked down in, uh, as something of, of half-breeds. Well, he would have been the one whom the people of Israel would have thought is the most unworthy of God's favor. Like, who is this Samaritan to receive the mercy of the Lord? And he would have been the one who felt himself the most unworthy and the least entitled to receive Jesus' mercy himself. But friends, Jesus did show him mercy. Jesus did heal him. And this man was not entitled, so he came back and he gave thanks. Well, brothers and sisters, gratitude is the opposite of entitlement. It is the, the antidote to entitlement. If you want to know whether you're entitled, just ask yourself the last time you said thank you to others, the last time that you said thank you to God. Friends, is your life characterized by gratitude? Well, when, you're, when you're feeling entitled, just to stop and ask yourself what you have to be thankful for. Well, Christian, the answer is never anything less than your salvation. Never anything less than all you have in this life. And never anything less than every good thing that has ever happened to you in your life or will ever happen to you in your life. Well, when the Samaritan returned, Jesus showed him an even greater mercy and grace. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Now, other translations, if you have another translation of the Bible, it may say your faith has made you well, which is also a fine translation of the Greek. But I think your faith has saved you better communicates Jesus' message here. Now, why is that? It's because this man had already been healed. In fact, all ten men had been healed. But only this man was saved. All ten were physically healed, but only this man found spiritual healing. All ten seemed to have some measure of faith in Jesus, but only this man had saving faith. 
All ten wanted mercy, but only this man gave glory to God and thanked Jesus for the mercy that he had received. As the Israelites, maybe the, the other nine felt entitled to God's mercy. They're deserving of it. We're children of Abraham. Of course Jesus would heal us. And what is clear is that those nine love the gift that they received. They love the healing far more than the giver, far more than the healer. But not this man, not the Samaritan. Notice that he actually returned to thank Jesus before he even made it to the priest. He was so grateful that he returned before he even received the gift of being readmitted to society. Imagine you had been living alone, isolated for who knows how long. You'd be rushing to that priest. But instead, he took time to turn around and say, thank you. He loved the giver of mercy more than the gift. He loved Jesus. Friends, I want you to notice something else that this man did when he returned. Let's look at verse 16. He drew near to Jesus. He came and fell at his feet. He had cried out to mercy along with the other nine from far off. Because Jesus showed him mercy, he was able to draw near to the feet of Jesus. Christian, what a glorious picture this is of what Jesus did for you at the cross. When he died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus made a way for you to draw near to God by paying the penalty for your sin that separated you from God. Because we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, we can boldly approach God's throne of grace to find grace and mercy in our time of need. Friends, Jesus really healed this man of leprosy. This is a historical event. But do not miss the fact that God sovereignly ordained this to be a picture of our salvation. A leprosy was a disease of the skin that made one unclean. So we've said a number of times it led people to being segregated from the community of Israel. But more significantly, it separated them from the presence of God in the temple. But friends, the, the Bible makes clear that each and every one of us has a disease far more serious than any skin disease. We have a disease of the heart. A leprosy of the heart, if you will. Sin, our sin, has made ourselves, has made our hearts, has made our whole selves unclean. This is the language that the Bible often used to speak about our sin. Leprosy is used to represent our sin. Our sin has separated us from the holy God who cannot dwell with sin. And friends, Jesus is the only one who can make you clean. It was Jesus who healed this man and made him physically clean. But this man was healed from an uncleanness far greater than the uncleanness of his skin. He was cleansed from the uncleanness of his heart. He was saved. Jesus healed this man of his leprosy. He healed all ten men of their leprosy to prove that he was the one with the power to make clean, not just physically, but spiritually. Remember that story of Naaman that Nora read for us. Elisha said that he would heal Naaman to show that there was a God in Israel. Jesus healed to show that he was God who came to heal sin. Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to forgive. And friends, this is what we all need. If you are here, if you are not a Christian, 
you've never repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually unclean. You are filthy in God's sight. And if the sin of your heart is not cleansed, you will be condemned to hell, eternally separated from the experience of God's love and mercy. Friends, the only way to be made clean and to be welcomed into the presence of God is to be covered by the blood of Jesus. You must repent and place your absolute trust and, and confidence and reliance on Jesus who shed his blood for you on the cross to forgive and cleanse you from sin. This is how James puts it in James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Friends, how do you draw near? Well, it's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus cleanses the hearts of those who draw near to him in repentance and faith. And friends, if salvation was available for this foreigner, this Samaritan, have confidence that salvation is available for you too. But church, do not miss the fact that James' James's command to draw near to God was given to the church, to those who had already repented to believe. In other words, church, drawing near to God should be the continual attitude of our heart. We draw near by regularly confessing our sin when you cause others to stumble, when you fail to forgive, when you feel entitled to something from God or others. We also draw near by coming before the Lord in worship with an attitude of thanksgiving. And brothers and sisters, our worship is not just what we do here on Sunday morning. No, true worship is to faithfully obey the Lord in all areas of life. It is to faithfully do your duty. It is to forgive, to confess, to seek to grow in faith, and to offer the praise of thanksgiving to the Lord. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in other words, in thankful remembrance of the saving mercy of Jesus Christ, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Church, this is your duty. May the Lord increase our faith so that we may carry it out. Let's pray.